Welcome to episode 168 of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. I'm a retired agent on a mission to show the public who the FBI is and what the FBI does through my books, my blog, and my podcast case reviews with former colleagues. Today, we get to speak to John Kuntz, who served in the FBI for 20 years. His first assignment was to the Philadelphia Division, where he worked initially, Fraud Against the Government Matters. In this episode, John reviews the 1981 counterfeit SEPTA Transpass case, where two men, using specialty paper, printed and sold fake monthly fare instruments, Transpasses, which caused losses of $1 million per month to the Philadelphia Transit Agency. After a promotion to FBI headquarters, John worked first in the Inspection Division, Office of Planning, Evaluations, and Audits, and then in the Personnel Office, where he adjudicated employees determined by the Inspection Division to have been involved in serious administrative or illegal conduct. John says that the unit was affectionately known as the You Fail, We Nail group. He also worked in the Office of Public and Congressional Affairs. Later in John's career, he was transferred to the Denver Division, where he was the supervisor of the Special Operations Group, SOG, which conducted ground, air, and electronic surveillance throughout the Denver Division, which covers all of Colorado and Wyoming. Upon retiring, John Kuntz took up another challenging role, being a stay-at-home dad caring for his two young daughters. This was a fun interview for me. It was great catching up with John. Plus, I got to talk about SEPTA, which, as most of you know, after I retired from the FBI, I was SEPTA's spokesperson and director of media relations for seven years. As a matter of fact, my first book, Pay to Play, is for sale at the SEPTA Museum Transit Store. So if you are in Philadelphia, stop by 1234 Market Street and pick up a copy and tell my SEPTA friends I said, miss you much. But before we get to the interview, I just want to remind you that I'll be sending out my June Reader Team email on June 3rd. I don't like to send out emails on the weekends because I think most people look at their emails on a weekday. So I'll send it out on Monday, June 3rd from my vacation spot of Whidbey Island, Washington State, where I'll be visiting my son and his girlfriend and their brand new daughter, Wendy Odessa. So I might sneak in a photo or two from my trip in that email. But the great thing about the email, now listen closely, I have two opportunities. I'm giving away a scholarship to the She Podcast Live Conference in Atlanta, in October. The only thing you need to be eligible is that you either just started a podcast or will be starting a podcast before the end of the year. And I'll have more details about that in my June reader team email. Now, the other opportunity, I'm looking for about 200 people to join my launch team as I release FBI Myths and Misconceptions, a manual for armchair detectives on June 27th. I am so excited about myths and misconceptions. 
In each chapter, I discuss one of my top 20 cliches and misconceptions about the FBI and provide a reality check while breaking down the facts. Throughout the book, I use quotes and snippets from some of the retired agents about how the real FBI works. I also review popular films and fiction featuring FBI agent characters. While you're waiting for the book to be published, why not join my reader team and get the FBI reality checklist to discover the top 20 FBI myths and misconceptions. You can join my reader team at jerrywilliams.com or if you're listening on a podcast app that supports links, you can join in the description of this episode. Thank you. Now here's the show. I am excited to introduce my guest, John Kuntz. Hey, John, how are you? I'm fine. Thank you, Jerry. Thanks for having me on. Well, it's been great. I have to give credit to Joe Gousseau, who used to be your supervisor when you were in Philadelphia. I asked him to give me some you know, possible Philadelphia cases to review, and he reminded me that you had investigated this case that is kind of connected to what I did after the FBI. Well, it was a very interesting beginning to my career, to say the least. I reported to Philadelphia in the fall of 1979, and shortly thereafter joined uh, Joe Gasso's Fraud Against the Government Squad. And one of the first cases I received was the SEPTA counterfeiting case, which was interesting at the time and maybe a little historical background. There were no really computers then, certainly no cell phones, no any way to speed up or electronically have a ticket to ride uh, one of the SEPTA buses or trains or anything like that. And what they were using was basically a piece of paper that was printed with the month that the ticket was valid, and they would change the design a little bit and the color, but that was it. There was no chip, no anything. So it was vulnerable to counterfeiting. This was 1980, pre-electronic. We would consider it a very archaic way of issuing a pass these days. Today, you can put anything on your phone, not back then. Let me backtrack a little bit and explain to everybody what SEPTA is. SEPTA is the Philadelphia transportation system. So you have the Chicago Transit Authority, the CTA, you have the MTA in uh, New York, which I take it stands for Metropolitan Transit Authority. You have the WMTA in Washington, D.C. And in the Philadelphia area, you have the SEPTA, which we call SEPTA, and it stands for the Southeastern Pennsylvania Transportation Authority. And the reason I know all of this is because that's where I worked for seven years after I left the FBI. I was their director of media relations, basically their spokesperson. And uh, so I know all about trans passes. And I have to tell you, John, uh, they were still using trans passes wow. so and, were, and tokens. Well, a token you can't counterfeit is easy, that's for sure. <laughs> right. But they, they hadn't gotten anything on phones or ta- uh, strips or anything? They do now. They, but it, okay. was just, it was just recently introduced, I would say, in you know, 20, it would have been 2016, that the new electronic system was introduced. Now, the trans passes uh, did have, and I think they probably did then too, you might not remember this, but the trans passes did have a magnetic strip 
that you would slide through that would count off the number of rides, et cetera, that you used that month. So yeah, they were still vulnerable to counterfeiting up until, like I said, just a few years ago. Wow. Well, back then, SEPTA was losing quite a bit of money because of counterfeiting, which is how the FBI came to be involved because uh, SEPTA received a lot of financial support through the Department of Transportation. And so when those monies were commingled, it would be a fraud against the government, the U.S. government, to, uh, to counterfeit and to steal that money, literally. So that's how the case was opened and uh, the predicate for us to move forward. I would think, basically then, counterfeiting a SEPTA transpass, whether it be a weekly or a monthly, was almost like making money. Oh, that's exactly right. I mean, uh, you would have to find the correct looking paper and then have a ability to print print that paper with the various SEPTA logos and whatever else they had on that piece of paper. But uh, it would be certainly easier than anything today to try to counterfeit or to manipulate. Now, do you know how much those weekly passes and monthly passes went for back then? No, I don't recall. It didn't seem to be a, well, that was 1980. So well, eight, I, eight I can tell you. $8 a week, maybe? Yeah, I can I can tell you because I looked it up. Because okay. you know, that, that's my hobby. I'm still exercising my investigative techniques by looking up everything. I look up everything. And so I, I looked it up in anticipation of this case review. And I found out that back uh, when this case occurred, a weekly pass was $8.25. Okay. And a monthly pass was $32 a month. Okay. And that's interesting because... Uh, SEPTA estimated that they were losing about $200,000 because of this counterfeiting effort, which was probably about 25% of what they anticipated making on these uh, passes weekly and monthly. So there was a significant impact on uh, SEPTA revenue at that time. All right. Can I give a little trivia while we're here? Certainly. The weekly pass now, which is part of an electronic, uh, you know, pass, which you can use on your phone, uh, is now twenty-five dollars and fifty cents per week, and the SEPTA monthly transpass is ninety-six dollars. Well, I guess we can chalk that up to inflation over those many years. Yes. <laughs> All right. So let's get to the case. I'm so excited about this case review because this is like a trifecta for me. It brings together many of the things that I've done during my career. Of course, connected to the FBI. It's connected to SEPTA, my post FBI job. And now it's connected to podcasting. So let's get started. Where would you like to start? Well, why don't I, I started where I uh, began earlier with arriving in Philadelphia and getting the assignment from Joe Gasseau to uh, take a look at this SEPTA problem. And at that time, uh, when I was looking at it, I said, this really is sort of like a drug organization. I mean, you got the people at the bottom who are users, or in this case, we're using the uh, illegal uh, SEPTA passes. And some of those people, quite a few actually had been arrested for that, but it wasn't leading anywhere. There was, there was, we're not going up the chain at all to try to figure out 
who was doing this or who the, the top participants were, perpetrators. What we did was working with SEPTA, we determined that SEPTA would order their paper to make these passes from one of the major companies in the, in the country. And so we had went to Georgia Pacific and we asked them if it was possible to make a, a very a unique paper that we could then track or trace when it arrived in Philadelphia. And obviously this paper didn't go to the legitimate printer of these passes. And we would hope that whoever the perpetrators were, they would come and pick up this special paper and then we would be able to uh, identify them and uh, then work on where they were printing these up. So where was this special paper delivered? There were three companies in Philadelphia at that time who were paper distributors. I mean, all kinds of paper products. And when we got the special product, we asked those companies to give us a call if anybody came to get, get at some of that paper because it was not meant for anything else. Uh, it was specially made for, for SEPTA and for us in this case. So what happened was we ended up getting a call from one of the companies that an individual had brought in a small piece of this special paper, which was probably gotten from an original and legitimate pass. And we were then able to be there when uh, the person later identified as James Dagney came to pick up the paper. So from then on, we were able to use our special operations group in a ground surveillance, and he led us to the uh, printing plant. If he had been able to pick up the paper and you had lost him, you still had a way of identifying these counterfeit passes because you, in a sense, had marked bills when you, you know, relate it back to counterfeiting money. Now, that is correct. And if uh, we would have lost him somehow in traffic or uh, as circumstances would have been, we would have been able to try it again the following month because they were certainly printing these passes up towards the very end of the month because they had to be ready to be sold illegally before the beginning of the new month. So that's when they would be valid for uh, transit. So we knew there was a window that these had to be produced. And so we were lucky on our first uh, attempt. We were able to identify one perpetrator and the location of the uh, printing plant. Tell me more about the printing plant. Well, the printing plant was up in uh, Philadelphia. It was called uh, Conestoga Press. So once we identified where that was, and that was up at 520 Kenor Street, K-N-O-R-R, then we were in pretty good shape because we had identified one perpetrator, we had identified the printing plant, and this printing plant was legitimate. This was not uh, something in somebody's basement. It was a printing plant that did uh, legitimate work. And we knew we were on the right track, and we wanted to try to catch these individuals in the act of preparing or actually printing these uh, unlawful passes. Well, let me ask you a question, because if you say that the printing plant did legitimate work, 
when somebody comes in with an order for a SEPTA pass and they're not a SEPTA authorized individual, uh, how, how is that a legitimate service they're providing? Well, it wasn't legitimate in that case. Obviously, there was a perpetrator inside the plant. And this was not a giant place. This was a small building. Uh, and they were doing other work in there. But the individual identified as James Dagney, who we'd followed to that location, probably about a year earlier, had uh, got another individual by the name of uh, Capewell to be his associate in the illegal production of these counterfeit septipasses. So uh, his name is George Capewell, and he lived up in Annapolis Road in, in uh, Philadelphia. So their conspiracy had continued for a good part of a year. They'd been able to uh, make this uh, illegal operation go. And who are they selling these passes to? How are they, how are they selling them? Because I can tell you that SEPTA passes can be sold at SEPTA. A legitimate sales organization, a kiosk or something like that, yeah. Right. But, so, but these passes, I mean, how were they sold and who were they sold to? Uh, well, essentially, it was, it's uh, somewhat akin to, as I mentioned before, a drug organization. They would print the passes and cut them and, you know, make them look real official. And they would sell them in bulk to other people and they would just continue on down the pyramid to the actual user at the bottom. And it was generating a lot of money for Dagny and uh, and Capewell. So uh, we were, uh, you know, interested to find out as the case developed. Dagny had spent a lot of cash money on a house, and a car, and things like that. So they weren't smart in, no, in that respect. They never converted their cash to something else. They were taking bundles of cash in to buy things to support the, their lifestyle. And was that part of your investigation, following that money trail? Uh, certainly was, because uh, we wanted to certainly be able to asset forfeiture what these people had spent these ill-gotten gains on. So uh, that came out in the investigation and into trial itself, how much uh, cash money, at least from Dagny's part. It was always said that Capewell, for his work at, at the print shop, and he was a printer, was only getting about $1,000 a month. So Mr. Dagney was the uh, main recipient of all this cash that was coming up through this system of uh, buying illegal passes. If you could tell us more about the surveillances and what you were able to show you know, he was doing. Uh, well, yes, we prepared a search warrants for the location, the Conestoga Press location, but we did not want to make that raid until we were certain they were in the act of actually printing the passes. So it was necessary to keep a surveillance uh, on that location and also on uh, Dagny, who we had determined was probably the mastermind of this uh, operation. So until the paper and Dagny and Capewell were actually all three of those, our two people in the product were actually at the printing plant. We didn't want to hit it at that until that had happened. And we had some ability to determine 
that uh, they were about ready to uh, print. What happened that day is, and this was Thanksgiving Day of 1980. Why? Uh, H- hold on, hold on. Thanksgiving Day. So you had, <laughs> because, yes. because again, as a case agent, you need other agents and FBI support people to support you in a search. So you have FBI employees out on Thanksgiving Day? Uh, that is absolutely true. Why Thanksgiving Day? Because that's when we had determined Dagny was heading to the printing plant. And Thanksgiving Day being towards the end of the month, we thought this was probably the day that they were going to print these uh, illegal passes. So the surveillance squad was on Dagny, the surveillance squad and other agents were at the uh, printing plant. And when Dagny showed up there and uh, we were able to determine visually that it looked like they were going to start printing, we continued to communicate back with Joe Gasseau, who communicated with the U.S. Attorney's Office, who then communicated with the duty federal judge so we could update the search warrant continuously and have the best possible document available when we actually hit the place. What kind, if any, participation did you have from SEPTA? As I recall, we didn't have any participation at that at that time with uh, a SEPTA involved in the raid, nor the Philadelphia Police Department. This was strictly an FBI case and uh, operation. And so it was uh, quite interesting when we hit that plant and to see what was in there and uh, what was going on. When you came into the plant and caught them in the act, were they surprised? Yes, they were very surprised. And we just found a treasure trove of evidence against the two individuals because uh, they had already made the printing plates for the SEPTA passes for the next month. And so not only that, but we found printing plates for illegally making U.S. postage stamps and also various road passes that were for trucks and cars that were another way that people could make money by illegally printing those documents that would go on your car or truck. So there was a lot of things going on in there. All right. So they weren't just counterfeiting SEPTA passes. Well, are you are you talking about like the motor vehicle inspection stickers? Is that what they were counterfeiting? Yes, it was it was uh, similar to that. And so that, you know, people could pay for this and they wouldn't have to get inspected. And the same thing for interstate trucks. So, I mean, this was a a pretty dangerous situation if somebody could buy an illegal safety sticker, essentially, that you weren't gotten your safety inspection and be out there on the road and not have received the inspection uh, correctly. And, of course, we picked up a lot of other things that matched up the printer plates, ink, dyes, blank sheets of paper, the unique paper that we had made for uh, the case, And it was interesting, we don't think they'd actually printed any stamps, postage stamps, but they were certainly getting ready to, and it was a general consensus that if they would have kept going, I think they would have ultimately tried to counterfeit U.S. currency. Wow. So all of this extra stuff, 
the motor vehicle stickers and all of that. Had you any idea that was going on before you did the search? Um, absolutely not. This was uh, completely new to us and, of course, added support to the, the premise that this was a totally illegal operation and that uh, this was a money-making operation. So it was even more damaging than just the SEPTA passes, which was costing SEPTA money. But some of these other things they were making, uh, especially the safety stickers, was going to cause a lot of problems if uh, vehicles really hadn't been inspected and uh, were out there uh, on the road in an unsafe condition. Well, I have to ask this question for my SEPTA colleagues. And I know I have a number of my former co-workers who listen to the show. Was there, it sounds like there had to be somebody maybe inside that was working with them because as you had previously mentioned, usually on the monthly and the weekly passes, there was some type of a photo or some type of an advertisement that would indicate, in addition to the month being uh, printed, that this was a new pass for, you know, that you could visually see that this was the next month's pass. How are they getting that information ahead of time to be able to print those passes? Well, we could never uh, determine that, actually. And uh, SEPTA was, you know, obviously very helpful in giving us the information they had about this counterfeiting operation and people had been arrested. The whole process of you know, letting a, a, the correct contract, getting the SEPTA passes printed up, you know, distributing through their various sales outlets and things like that. But as to why they were able, the, the uh, Bagney and, and Capewell were able to get a, an initial snippet of this paper, we could never actually ascertain where that came from. They never showed up with a with a trans a month early trans pass, not the complete pass, but just a piece of the paper, which they went to that uh, paper distribution center and were able to you know match it up and and buy it and and that started our uh, our case down the road. But uh, uh, and also the SEPTA individuals provide a lot of support in the in the case preparation going to trial because we had the course show what the uh, operation was from SEPTA side and uh, the damage being done to uh, uh, the SEPTA revenue stream. So I'm really surprised that this went to trial because, you know, it sounds like you had some really tangible, you know, hardcore evidence to, you know, show what they were doing. But uh, who went to trial, both of them? No, um, Mr. Capewell decided to create or went with a, a plea arrangement with the government and became a witness against Mr. Dagney. And I think uh, Mr. Dagney was pretty much forced to go to trial because he already had a prior criminal record. And if he pled guilty, he was going to go to jail anyway. And so there was a, at least a shot at being exonerated if he did go to trial. Uh, we did go to trial. All the evidence was presented and various witnesses from SEPTA and, and agents and from the paper company. And Mr. Capewell himself testified about the illegal operation and Mr. Dagney's participa participation in the uh, conspiracy to make the passes. 
And what was the bottom line? What kind of sentencing did both of them receive? Well, Mr. Dagny received uh, three years in prison, and Mr. Capewell received uh, six months in uh, prison for this uh, illegal activity. Well, this was an interesting case. I believe that, you know, after this case, there might have been at least another time when people attempted to counterfeit uh, the SEPTA passes. I believe it may have even occurred during my time there. So it's good that they've moved on to the electronic passes now. I do have to say this, and this is, of course, has nothing to do with the case review, But a lot of times people ask me what it was like to work for SEPTA after working for the FBI for 26 years. And I honestly let them know that I felt that both agencies were mission focused. Of course, the FBI and and keeping, uh, you know, the citizens safe and and SEPTA, their mission, of course, was to, to, to get the trains, the buses, the trolleys and the commuter rails, the regional rail you know, moving, uh, you know, on time. So I really enjoyed working for, for SEPTA, and I consider it my second most favorite career. That was just a little love letter to SEPTA. <laughs> well, let me uh, say something about after the trial and after we were able to release the evidence, I took the printing plates for the postage stamps down to Washington, D.C., and provided that to the United States Postal Inspection Service because they really didn't have a lot of examples of people trying to to uh, counterfeit U.S. postage stamps because that's that's even more difficult than than the, the SEPTA passes back at that time even. So they were quite interested in that the plates, the ink, the things that they'd been working on to try to you know use this uh, this printing plant to make illegal postage stamps. And we also had some other products that looked like, as I said, that they were trying to maybe move into making U.S. currency. So I turned all that over to the Secret Service Laboratory that they would have uh, examples of of what was going on at that uh, Conestoga Press location uh, when we raided it. Yeah, that's really fascinating, the fact that you believe that if they had continued to be successful with the printing of the passes and the safety inspection stickers, that they may have moved on to stamps and then U.S. currency. Oh, I, I think that was the postage stamps, certainly, because there was examples of that there, of uh, illegal activity in that area. And from the other uh, plates and, and other indicators there, evidence that we found, I think they were... Uh, you know, about ready to expand their illegal organization to making money, which would have uh, been interesting, but luckily that was thwarted, and two individuals received punishment from the U.S. federal court for their uh, illegal activities, which was conspiracy and fraud against the government. Well, this was an interesting case, and I know it was one of the cases that you worked early in your career. And we're just going to tease this just a little bit because you've already agreed that you're going to come back on to talk about one of the more historically significant cases in the Philadelphia area. And you were the case agent for the MOVE investigation. Just give us a little tease. 
because we're going to come back and, and do a full episode. There's so much to this case, but could you just tease everyone about what MOVE is and, and what happened? Well, MOVE was an organization that was all capital letters, M-O-V-E, which didn't stand for anything. It was not a stand-in for a longer term or anything like that. It was just MOVE. Not an acronym. And not an acronym is correct. And so in today's terms, we would probably call them an anarchy, uh, anarchists, uh, because they, they were sort of just all over the place on what they wanted to do. And for those who remember or don't remember, this was such a unique case in U.S. law enforcement because of the use of a law enforcement helicopter to drop a bomb on top of the move house, which was on Osage Street in Philadelphia, and the subsequent fire and death. It was uh, quite a situation on the day it occurred and continued for a long time thereafter, and so did the investigation that I was involved in. I was the case agent, and there were uh, two other agents involved and a special U.S. grand jury, two civil rights attorneys from the U.S. Department of Justice, and we had our own supervisor, Mr. Uh, Harold Wilson. And what exactly were you investigating? Well, we were investigating whether officials of the city of Philadelphia, mainly the mayor, the chief of police, uh, the chief of the fire department, and various police officers, did they in fact take away the civil rights of the MOVE members that day because of the explosions, the firefight, and things of that nature. So that was the the predicate. Was there civil rights abused by the government? Well, I can't wait until we go deep into that case review. I was in Philadelphia at the time. I had just moved here. Was that 1984? Yes. Yeah, so I had just moved here in November of 1984, and I remember watching on TV as a whole neighborhood burned down. But that's enough of the tease. Uh, yes. We'll get together and we'll do that case review in the very near future. Okay. But before we end, I would love to learn a little bit more about you, like when you joined the FBI and, and why you joined the FBI. Okay, that's pretty easy. I think I can remember all this. Before I was in the FBI, I was a U.S. Navy pilot for 10 years, and I entered the FBI after I left the Navy. I entered the FBI on July 9th, 1979, and served until March 31st of 2000. Eleven of those years, I served in the Philadelphia Division, five years at FBI headquarters, and uh, five years here in the uh, Denver office where I retired. So, and during that time in Philadelphia, worked a lot of different uh, cases and uh, different investigative areas. And the same at uh, FBI headquarters. And when I was in Denver, I was a supervisor of the SOG, Special Operations Group, the surveillance squad. How long have you been retired and what are you doing now? Well, I retired in 2000 when my wife and I adopted our first daughter. And so I, my third career after the Navy and the FBI became my Mr. Mom career. Your wife owned her own business? Yes. My 
wife worked at the Smithsonian. That's where I met her when she worked there. She came to Denver to be the chief executive officer of the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, which she did for eight years. And now she uh, owns her own company. And then ultimately there was a second daughter adopted. So I've been Mr. Mom up until uh, from 2000 to this year when my youngest daughter will be going away to college. So then I'll be on my fourth career, which I guess we could say was retirement with a capital R. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Uh, I I don't know very many FBI agents who have been able to just uh, retire. So I'll, I'll check back in with you on that. So, of course, we're going to get back together with you very soon and, and do that move case review. But for now, I'd, I'd like to give you the last word. So what would you like to say? Well, I'd like to say that uh, the FBI was just a great job, a great service, a great adventure. It's obviously changed tremendously. I'll give you one little antidote. When I first joined the FBI, of course, as I said, there were no computers. So you would call down to the steno pool and a young woman would come up and use shorthand to take your interview notes and then go back and type those notes, send it back to the agent who would make the corrections and then make a final copy for the file. All that is done uh, by the agent now, typing it up, sending it off. So things keep on moving. There's always crime and there's always new things for the agent to work with. And that's the end of the interview. At jerrywilliams.com, you'll find a photo of John Kuntz, who hasn't changed one bit in 30 years. There's also a photo of a SEPTA trans pass and links to articles about the counterfeit SEPTA case back in 1981 and, unfortunately, a more recent case that occurred in 2013. I hope you enjoyed the episode and that you'll share it with your friends, family, and associates. If they're not sure how to listen to a podcast, have them read the post on my website, How to Listen to a Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe to FBI Retired Case File Review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or anywhere you listen to audio. I also want to remind you that I have FBI Retired Case File Review stickers and buttons available on my website. I have packages ready to send out as soon as I get your order. This podcast is where I talk about true crime, but if you also enjoy watching crime dramas and reading crime fiction, then you want to join my reader team. When you do, you'll get a copy of my FBI reading resource, which is a list of all the books about the FBI written by the FBI agents who have been on this podcast. True crime, memoirs, and crime novels. Soon you'll be able to pick up a copy of my nonfiction book, FBI Myths and Misconceptions, a manual for armchair detectives. Coming soon to all stores where books are sold. It's a 55,000-word expanded version of my popular FBI reality checklist. If you enjoy police procedurals, I hope you also consider picking up copies of the crime novels in my FBI Philadelphia Corruption Squad series, Pay to Play and Greedy Givers. The crime fiction series features Special Agent Carrie Wheeler, Temptation, Corruption, and Redemption. The books are available as ebooks and paperbacks at Amazon.com, and Pay to Play is also an audiobook. 
I want to thank you for listening to the very end. And I hope you come back for another episode of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. Thank you.